Before we get started, could you do me one favor, and that is hit the follow button on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. It is the easiest and quickest way for you to support this show, and I thank you so much for doing it. Also, take a screenshot of you listening to this episode or maybe a previous episode before that's inspired you and put it on your Instagram story and tag at Lewis Hatchett so I can share that around. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I've been using Athletic Greens since they first came out, their first iteration. Having gone on a little bit of a hiatus, they are now into their 54th iteration and I'm now back on it. I had started taking it because I was worried about not getting any vitamins, minerals into my diet. I have been messing around with my diet, playing with different things, and that was something that I knew I wanted to stay on top of. Enter AG1. And they have 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help start your day off right. It has really helped with my energy, my focus, Uh, And they also promote that it supports your gut health, your nervous system, immune system, as well as things like aging. So how can you get a hold of it? How can you get started with yours? I actually take mine straight away at the start of the day. So when I get up, I just mix one scoop with a little bit of water, about 250 mils, shake it up and then get it down. So it's the first thing that I am digesting in the morning. And I really am starting to look forward to that fruity tropical mild flavor in the morning it's it's actually something i look forward to so for you guys to get started and they're making it easy they are going to be giving you a free one-year supply of immune supporting vitamin d and five free travel packs with your first purchase all you've got to do is head over to athleticgreens.com ryg that is athleticgreens.com ryg to grab a hold of this offer today. Welcome to the Raising Your Game podcast, where I connect well-being and performance, as well as speaking to those in the world of sport to share the experiences, practice, and wisdom that can help you in raising your game, both on and off the field. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Lewis Hatcher, and in this episode, I'm joined by Baroness Tanny Gray Thompson, crossbencher, politician, but 11 time gold medal winning Paralympian. And I grew up watching Tanny as a mainstay of British sport and athletics. She was always on the TV winning, so it was just a privilege to have her on the podcast for this episode. We talk about her upbringing and her parents' influence on her and who she is as the person she is today and their unique style of bringing her up, but what she's learned along the way and through her years as an athlete and how that's been able to transfer into her life as a politician and how she almost began with the end in mind, a very unique outlook on sport, but one that is super powerful. So you'll get to hear about that in this episode. We also go into her work on child welfare in sport as well as disability access. But like I said, it was a great honour to have Tani on the podcast and herself quoting Nelson Mandela, sport does have the power to change the world. And it was just so nice to be able to talk to her and hear about the work she's trying to do 
in allowing sport to have that influence on the wider world. So without any further hesitation, I give you Tanny Gray Thompson. Enjoy. Tanny, thank you so much for for joining me. Um, I, I I didn't even really know what the proper addressing of you is. I've never had a baroness on the podcast, which is which is incredible. But no, thank you so much for for having <laughs> the time and giving up this next hour. Pleasure. I, I'm just smiling because my name in my passport um, actually is Dame Tanny Caris Davina Gray Thompson, the Baroness of Eaglescliff, DBE. So, so I was going to bring this up because yeah, I the thought good. this is <laughs> Tanny works. But um, yeah. what you you didn't? There's a little story behind your 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 name, Tanny, isn't there? So what, tell people that maybe don't know that what is it? Uh, so I've got an older sister, and uh, she was two years older than me. When my parents told her there was going to be another baby, she was very excited, and they just thought they were just brilliant parents having a well-adjusted child. And apparently when I came home from hospital, um, she stood next to the crib and just stood there and went, ugh, it's tiny. Because it turns out she thought it was going to be a baby her size to play with. And she was singularly unimpressed with me. And apparently for several days just stood there going, tiny, it's tiny, it's tiny, it's tiny. And sort of, it sort of morphed into tiny. And when they tried to get her to say, look, you know, the baby's Karis, this is the name of the baby, she just screamed. So it was easier for my parents to change my name. And then apparently she was like absolutely perfectly behaved. And I think everyone thought at some point I'd go back to being called Karis. And that didn't happen. Um, and then my daughter's called Karis, um, mm. mostly because I wanted a Welsh name for her. But um, it was the only name that my English husband could pronounce properly. Because I always think, you know, if you've got a child, the dad should actually be able to pronounce its name. You know, so um, he, he struggled with a lot of the other names that I really liked, which were kind of quite difficult to say, to be honest. Yeah. So so you were born into Welsh uh, family and what I mean, I, I'm British, but I, I know people who listen to this outside of the UK will just think of like, oh, my God, there's more than one country in a country <laughs> and uh, <laughs> on an island. But uh, what was it like growing up in, in that area? What's the area that you're from like? So I'm from Cardiff, which is the capital city, and you know it's it's not a very big city, but there's like loads of stuff there. So if you kind of want, you know, sport, opera, cinema, you you name it, that it it's there. I think it is quite a sporty city because you've got you know the rugby and you've got the football. And mm. um, I grew up in a very sporty house, so um, my mum would watch anything. Um, my dad played a lot of sport, uh, and uh, he played cricket. I think quite badly. Um, he, he got his front teeth knocked out by a cricket ball, so that always was like quite amusing to us. Um, so, so sport was always there, and it was encouraged. And actually, in the early years, it was just about being physically active. It wasn't about um, you know a Paralympic pathway. It was about being fit and strong enough to to move my chair around. Um, but my parents were quite different. You know, when I started playing sport as opposed to being active, my mum wanted me to win, and you know, after a race, she'd be like, "Did you win?" And my dad's view was, did I race well? So the two were quite different. And actually, that provides a lot of balance. You know, my dad, I mean, yeah, he sort of did care if I won or not. But if if I said to him, no, I didn't didn't race as well as I could, he'd be like, oh, okay, right. So what are you going to do next time? So I think from, from a young age, I had a lot of balance in my life. And they didn't allow me to 
just define my life by being an athlete, you know, because of more of a Venn diagram, which might be overcomplicating my personality. But I think when you only define yourself by one part of your life, then it kind of narrows um, down what you do when you stop being that thing. So for me, you know, even now people stop me in the street and say, oh, you're the athlete. You know, well, I'm tied in 2000. So I never quite know what to say that bit. But um, I, I think it's important to kind of have balance because you, you don't always compete well. You know, uh, you, injury and all those things. Uh, and I, I think you need balance. And especially when you retire. You know, if, if you've been an elite athlete, when you retire, a big part of your identity goes with it. So I didn't experience that basically because mum and dad um, provided that kind of input into me when I was really young. What, what for, for those that are listening, um, let's just talk a little bit around your actual condition, spina bifida, what that means, just really touch base on that, just for anyone who's probably never heard of it, ju- just, I guess, in a real quick summary. Um, it affects children in, in lots of different ways. For me, um, the vertebra the, um, around the back of my spinal cord didn't form properly. So there's a kind of a big gap. Um, my mum my used to describe it as my spine being a bit of a mushy mess. It kind of sort of oozes out and it's a bit all over. Um, and so I could walk a little bit when I was young, not very well. I fell over a lot. But then as I grew, um, my spine collapsed and it was my own vertebra that severed my spinal cord. And I mean, it's, I didn't miss a day of school. I mean, it wasn't painful. It just, it just stopped walking. Uh, about to, over about two years, I gradually stopped being able to do things. So in some ways you adapt really easily when you're young. And because it wasn't a traumatic accident, I wasn't in hospital for six months. I'd learned to adapt to things as, as they went along. So by the time I was a wheelchair user, um, actually, you know, me being a wheelchair user, for me, it was an amazing experience getting a chair because my world when I was trying to walk was really narrow and it was about two meters around where I was because I couldn't get much further than that. And then suddenly when I had my chair, my world opened up because I could go further and I could do more things and I could play sport. And, and so for me, it was a really positive experience being a wheelchair user. That, that's not true for everybody, but for me, it was. No, I, w- I want to switch straight back to, there was a couple of things you mentioned about your, your parents there and that lovely blend. I think that was a truly lovely blend. I think that was a, a I don't know whether you would, yeah, as an, an anomaly in a, an apparent upbringing in it for an athlete, I think, but that that as well is not something that, is unobtainable for many parents. So I think parents that are potentially listening, then what would you, because there will be also parents that throw a lot on the athlete and performing well and getting the result, but your dad was talking about what what it meant to race well. Can you talk a little bit around what it actually meant to race well for you? So what were some of the things that you were looking into, the criteria, I guess? I mean, it's hard, you know, as a parent, because you want your child to do well and you want to encourage them. But, you know, in some sports in this country, you know, you can make a lot of money. I mean, not in my sport. You know, I, I won some sort of gift vouchers and, and not an awful lot more than that. But, um, you know, the, the pressure, you know, what I'd say to parents is don't live your lives through your kids. And that sounds really simple. But but it's really hard being a parent for a talented athlete because, you know, you shoulder to cry on, you're the emotional support, you're, you're the sponsor, you know, you're the coach, you're the taxi driver, you're the nutritionist. Um, and and it's it's really difficult to get all those sort of relationships um, right. So to my dad, racing well was um, partly, had I done all the training that I should have done? And had I prepared, you know, in the year, say it's a major game, had I prepared in the year up to it well, you know, it'd be things like, you know, 
I hardly, I can't remember, you know, skipping training sessions. Those training sessions I absolutely changed because of a whole range of different things. But it was all about the preparation leading up to it. It was about, you know, eating right, sleeping right, um, you know, uh, and making good decisions in races. And actually it's about, you know, sport's really emotional, but but actually if you're in a big race, you, you need to manage that emotion. I used to throw up before every single race I did. Never got any better. Um, so that was kind of quite emotional, but that's about two hours before. And then once that had happened, I was sort of in a better place and I could get my head around competing. But, um, you know, it was about had I done everything I could within the, you know, what, what you can do in the sport to, to, to be good. You know, so something like a 400 meters would be, you know, split into eight segments. Did I nail each of the eight segments? Because if I'd said to him, you know, segment three was a bit rubbish, he'd be like, well, you know, we'd talk about that. And, and he wouldn't necessarily, you know, ask had I won. My mum would be straight on the phone asking that. He'd be like, okay, how, how was it? And, and so I think what that gave me as well is you win or you lose, you evaluate it in the same way. And that's really important because when you win, there's a lot of happy emotion. If you don't win, it's lots of emotion. And it's really easy to get distracted by that. And don't get me wrong, I did, you know, I did winning was lovely and losing's not. But, uh, and there was a lot of emotion, a few of my races that I lost spectacularly. But, you know, um, you, you've got to come back. You've got to get back in, you know, your head in gear and you've got to evaluate it to move on or you stop. You know, and I, I guess, you know, for me, from probably my first games, you know, my dad saying to me, well, number one was you've got to have an education because you might not get selected. And, you know, number two, you've got to think of something else. And, and I remember I'd been away at a training camp. I'd been in, in Australia for three months and I'd come back, family dinner, and I was just raving about Australia and everything. And after about five minutes, my dad said, um, right, so, you, you know, uh, it rained once, you went out on New Year's Eve and you trained a lot. Yeah. And he turned to my sister and said, so what did you do today? And, you know, it was, it's just that kind of balance. that. We, and then they let me talk about Australia. Oh, wow. But, you know, it's it's um, it's not getting wrapped up in yourself. So, so the other thing, Dad, you know, don't believe your own hype. Because when you're winning, people love yeah. you. And when you're not winning, people don't. And, you know, you, you can't believe, you know, you, you've got to step away from, you know what, what's written in the media about you because a lot of that's not not me it's it's someone's version of me yeah i think that's so fascinating i think there's so many i've seen a load of parents who can get caught up especially of talented young young athletes they they can get caught up in the hype of those those kids and then those kids almost struggle when there is a challenge, there is an adversity because it's the first time they face it. It's the first time they hear someone say something negative about them and they're like, well, what, what, is, what do I do with this? How do I, how do I manage that? So to have that lovely blend of being able to normalize <laughs> very, very cool things, very, very cool things that you're going to be doing, to have that normalized is, is definitely powerful in the upbringing of a young person. My my. Mum and dad were kind of ahead of their times in terms of parenting a, an athlete, mm. um, but also they're ahead of their time in terms of their attitude to me as a disabled child. So my parents fought to get me into mainstream education. My dad threatened to sue the Secretary of State for Wales over my right to go to a mainstream school. You know, there were things like that happened. So they, they were ahead of their time in, in, in lots of stuff. And, you know, I kind of thought that's what every child had. And then you realise it's not. And, and that's kind of affected the stuff I do now because... You know, I think in, uh, probably about the age of 12, 13, you realised actually I was unbelievably lucky and privileged to have the parents I did. And that, that's kind of affected my life in sport because 
you've got this limited time to achieve and you, you've got to do other things in your life. And I remember Dave Moorcroft, um, 5,000 meter runner saying to me, you're a long time retired. So, you know, I started planning my retirement out of sport when I was 21 and I oh, retired wow. at 36, you know, and, yeah, and that, I kind of that, ended up, yeah, I ended up where that, I kind of wanted to be in, in my second career. That's that's very forward thinking from your parents. Interesting. Is there have you ever gone into like where they maybe got that from? Like, what was it? So have two people like that as well as well in a relationship. Sometimes you hear just maybe one parent might be like that, but to have two that are, and the blend being so good is just like a perfect storm. Um, there's kind of loads of layers to it. So both my parents were only children. Um, my dad was kind of quite ill as a child and had sort of quite a restricted upbringing. Um, my mum had sort of uh, quite sort of a different childhood, but I think they they saw kind of their job was to um, be a parachute for us, but to encourage us to do things. And I think my dad always kind of wanted to travel, and he never got to travel quite as much as he wanted to. Um, and my dad actually wanted to do um, archaeology at university, and I think that's what he applied to do. And then his dad went to the university and said, no, he's going to do architecture. And the university went, okay. So my dad turned up and he was doing architecture. And I was like, because oh, back wow. then apparently your dad could do that. So, um, you know, dad being an architect, he knew the built environment. He knew how inaccessible the world was, you know. And then, you know, he matching up me as a five-year-old as a wheelchair user with this inaccessible world. He's like, right, how, you know, the world's not going to change for me. So how am I going to change for the world? So there was... You know, I wish he'd written, you know, like a book on this or something because it was just, um, you know, they 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 were amazing in terms of what they encouraged me to. I remember um, wanting to do four races in a week, and everyone telling me I was an idiot. And my dad, I'm, I'm going to my, I was expecting my dad to call me an idiot, and he was like, "Well, do it, and what's the worst that can happen?" Um, so the first race was in Toronto on Saturday and Sunday. Then it was Tuesday uh, in Zurich, um, Thursday Aarhus in Denmark, and Saturday in Atlanta. And my dad was just planning flights. You'd be all right, you know. <laughs> and I did it. I mean, I was completely wiped out at the end of it. So, so he was always like, going, "Well, give it a go. Yeah, just you know, what, what, what's the worst that can happen? Well, the worst that can happen is you not win. And as much yeah. as that's not a lot of fun, it, it's yeah, it, it's you, you have fun trying. So actually, I. I enjoyed the process of being an athlete as much as I enjoyed the competing. So I think, you know, I, I know athletes who love training more than racing and would overtrain. I think I was quite good at getting that balance between training and loving competing and, um, you know, uh, training hard, but training smart. And that was good. Co- that's good coaching from a young age. Amazing guy yeah. called Roy Anthony coached me in Bridge End. I mean, he needed a knighthood. He coached like 40 hormonal teenage girls. I mean, I, I don't know how did this. I mean, but but it, it that started off from being a young athlete as well. That right culture and the right tone. Yeah, I've heard you say you can't go back in sport. I've heard you say that 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 quote and and that what you were saying there about your dad, like yeah, just go do it, just get into it. Like gives that impression of okay, well, whatever. What's the worst that could happen? It should this not work out? And and ultimately, I really sort of you can't go back in sport is saying that yeah you you can't have an opportunity that's already gone past you. Yeah. So throw yourself into everything. But I mean, you're, there's a bit where, you know, if you don't make one game, yes, you can train for the next. But, you know, there is a point in life where you can't get any stronger. You can't get any faster. 
And, yeah. you know, I, I will never be as skinny as I was when I was coming. I had virtually no body fat. I weighed 45 kilos. Um, no, that's not, that's not real. But, but, you know, I was able to compartmentalize that's my life as an athlete. So, you know, yeah, you, you can train through lots of things, but you can't, you know, you, you have this limited time. Um, and depending on what sport it is, some sports you can compete a lot later uh, and others you can't. So, um, yeah, it's making the most of the opportunity that you have. I was lucky I was born in the right year that I got to do five games. If I'd been born a year earlier uh, or a year later, I, I don't think I could have done five Paralympics because I, I just would have been at the right point in time to make the first team to do all the other stuff. And my Athens, I was kind of hanging on at the back end. So, um, you know, post Athens I went downhill pretty quickly um so yeah for me it's just like the bit I get frustrated about was that um I if, if somebody wants to train once a week and not really race and that, that's all right but, um I, I struggle with athletes who say they want to be Paralympians or Olympians but don't commit to training and don't commit um you know I, I worked with an athlete a while ago who every training session said do I have to like no you don't you know, you don't know. So I didn't make any sacrifices to mm. do because it was what I wanted to do. My family, parents, lots of other people helped and supported me and made sacrifices. But if it's not what you truly want to do, go and find something that that you at least don't hate. You know, you can't love every bit of your job. You, I mean, that's not real. But but don't do something um, that, uh, that, that you don't enjoy, especially in sport. Uh, I've also heard you say that not every disabled athlete can be a Paralympian which is which is really interesting as well because I think sometimes that's a that's people's like um hopeful perception and they they're just really wishing that every every person that has a disability can just be in the Paralympics and it I've been around Paralympians and it is the way I describe it to people is that there is there is no difference in mindset essentially, but there is no, it's just simply the body works differently. That's all. And, and the tears. And then, and then you've got to try and fit into a compartment of the, the tears of whatever category you might have to fit in, in whatever discipline you eventually choose. It's not, it's not just this, like, Oh, you have a disability. You're going to be at the top. It requires a lot. Exactly. And you know, I don't think you should say to a 10 year old non-disabled child, you're never going to be an Olympian. So don't bother. You know, but but you wouldn't say to every non-disabled 10-year-old, you're going to be an Olympian. You kind of manage a bit of the expectation along the way. And, you know, as a Paralympian or disabled person, you've got to be talented and you've got to be slightly right place, right time and the right classification. And you've got to train hard. You've got to do do all those things. And I think, you know, 2012 was an amazing Games. But um, on the back of it, I think we have moved to a point where disabled children be told, oh, I'll be a Paralympian. Well, Tell them to be a doctor or a nurse or a lawyer or an admin officer. Tell them, it, you know, you're just pushing them down one route. And the other thing I really do struggle with is um, non-disabled people telling me that 2012 changed the world for disabled people. Now, the 2012 games were stunning and amazing. And it does set a tone. And it's, there are inspirational moments. And it can inspire young people to do amazing things, whether that's a sport or art or whatever it is. But I can only get on a third of London's tube stations. You know, it didn't, it didn't change that. Mm. Well, actually, to be fair, Kings Cross and Green Park changed because of the Olympics and Paralympics. But it didn't change lots of other things. You know, um, disabled children are still excluded from education. At the start of the pandemic, compulsory do not attempt resuscitation orders 
were put on tens of thousands of disabled people with no underlying health conditions and were told, you know, and, and, and I got ways that, you know, to rationalize treatment at a point we didn't know what was happening. But, you know, disabled people just told you have no value. So you can't expect 10 days of a games on their own to change the world. It can do loads of stuff. And the power sport, and Nelson Mandela said, sport has the power to change the world. And I, I kind of do believe that. But it can't change the world without lots of other spinning plates lining up at the same time as well. And that's a really bad metaphor, but it, it's not no, just the games yeah. on their own. Yeah, there's, there, there has to be everything aligning as well. It's not just this one big impactful thing that's going to change. It's, it's like someone saying they found, I don't know, a, a, probably an, a, a bad analogy, but like a fad diet or something like that, that this is just going to like bang, revolutionize. Well, no, hold on. You've actually got to put in a few things in place to get this perfect yeah. health balance that you eventually want to strive towards. Uh, yeah. I do want to touch on that on a lot of the... Uh, accessibility at the moment because I know you tweet a lot about that in it, and I, I want to circle round to that but I am curious as to because we, we haven't touched on it as to why you chose becoming an athlete like why why what was the draw to that what was the inspiration and, and attraction for that for you uh competitive you know I, I liked competing okay. over th- whether it's education or but whatever that that's in me you know it's kind of a family thing uh not all of my family it, it comes out in different ways sort of like competitiveness so my sister's not sporty competitive um actually not really bothered about winning in sport you know whereas you know i kind of wanted to to be the best i could be so um it was just a natural outlet and i think you know wheelchair racing gave me freedom um i think you know as a youngster as a teenager if i could have played basketball i would have um there wasn't really a team that close to me and i was rubbish at it so two fairly big barriers. Um, and I found wheelchair racing and I liked the fact that I could train on my own, but to also train with a group, um, that I could do it, you know, when I wanted, I was in more in control of my own destiny. Um, I love the idea of team sports and I would have loved to have played a team sport, but, um, you know, you're reliant on everyone else turning up and being as equally committed or, you know, and, and that for me just didn't kind of fit into where I, I, I kind of was. I've heard you talk about you enjoy basketball and you enjoyed playing basketball and and a bit of tennis as well, but maybe not as good at tennis than you were basketball. Yeah, it wasn't very good. And it's funny. I've just I've just sort of started playing a bit of basketball again, and it's so funny. And um, I've joined a team near where I live, and uh, I basically play like on the level of well, I'm not even the level of the junior team. I aspire to be the level of the junior team. And I went to a training <laughs> session quite early on, and this little sort of thirteen year old came up to me and said, "Have you ever played any sport?" Yeah. Yeah, and he's like, I think you're the same age as my grandmother. I'm like, thank you, that's lovely. And his mum was there, going, come here, come here. And she comes like, no, why, why would you have any clue who I was? You know, what I used to do. I mean, you know, but I thought it was really sweet. And he was like, follow me, and I'll show you what to do. But then, uh, you know, several kind of weeks in, I actually scored, and it was amazing. I mean, it was only in a training session and I got like a high five from like the whole team. And that was just like, I mean, it was like, yay. I mean, I can't actually describe how amazing it felt. And then I kind of probably haven't scored since. So there you go. Anyway, but it's fun. And I, I love it. It's, it's fun to compete at the level I can compete at. Yeah, I've, I've found the, I've always found it interesting speaking to athletes who play, who compete in individual sports. And then I play the team sport but I'm always interested around the motivation behind them and, and sort of 
their mindset because it's slightly different. Like you can lean on teammates in a team sport. You can lean on their wins, losses, success, anything that's going on and their their sort of their their mindset. But do you? I guess another question I'd have would be: Do you believe your mindset was a, a nature or nurture type thing? Kind of both, really. I mean, I look at mm. my mum, and I was so she's passed away now. So similar in personality to her, um, and both quite stubborn um, and determined. Probably a little bit awkward. Um, and my mum used to joke and say about the two of us that we were reeds that blew in the wind, that acquiesced to everyone's wishes but our own. You go, that, that, that was complete opposite, you know, kind of. And, and I think mum used to sort of use that to justify her stubbornness. Um, but, um, yeah, it's both, you know, if it, it's it, it's nature and nurture of, of my parents' life and background and, you know, my, my parents' work and just everything that made them kind of made made me. So, I mean, it's funny because my sister said, you know, she's two years older, not not really interested in competitive, loves watching sport, probably watches more than I do. I used to hate it when I was on Question of Sport because um, she'd always know the answers I got wrong. <laughs> oh, here we go. She's going to ring me as soon as it's on saying, mm, you're stupid. Um, but um, it, it's kind of fascinating how you can have sort of different children in the same same family. Yeah, I, my brother and I. So, so you had the the people always talk about that younger, the younger sibling having the like the more. And my brother definitely is going to always like big this up for me saying it. But he did have more than me, like in the sense that he had more ability, more talent, and like. But we both now agree that like they got a point where both pretty good at cricket and just something didn't align for him and it was the mental side it was the mindset side um yeah he just was un he was just unable to to really like allow that to to get him to the place where he needed to be he want or he could have got to i think could have got to you you've got to um you've got to have the natural talent but then you've also gone you have to work at it natural talent will take you so far you know, and you, but you can't. I, you don't meet many people who who just survive on natural talent. Um, and then there's that bit, and then, but I've seen it. You know, talking about certain athletes where they go, oh, natural talent. If they train a bit harder, you've got to do the right training for you as well, because you know, training a bit harder might get you injured or all sorts of things. So, it's um, yeah, it, it, I think it's quite a complicated one because I see, you know, in different sports, youngsters who really want it, but you just know aren't going to make and sometimes you see someone you can just see a spark in their eyes and you're thinking they've got something um but that's where coaching sort of tries to bring it out and former system tries to bring it out sometimes with more success than others um what what i'd love is you know what i, I say to youngsters if you want to be in sport you've got to love it because you don't always like it you know mm. going out doing a 25 mile training run on a Sunday morning in December when it's like three degrees, it's it's not a lot of fun. And you don't like it at that point, but you love the result at the end when you've you've put all that work in. Yeah, I guess that speaks to that process that you your your father had sort of instilled in you and in, in enjoying that part. Uh, look, you've had tons of conversations or interviews where people have talked about certain uh, 
successes you've had on the track and, and and we could go through all of the gold medals we go through all of those successes but I was really interested we I, I find that athletes and people in general have these crucible moments in in our lives and we have these moments that sort of define and, and maybe even change the direction of who we are or, or what we've done do you reckon there is a a moment or an event in which you had that you could really define as a crucible moment where you learned a lot about yourself and perhaps even changed who you are today? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a few different ones, but the biggest would be Athens, which is my final games. And um, I, when we had the schedule came out about 18 months ahead, the schedule looked really good for me in terms of 800 was first, uh, strongest event, 100 next, mm-hmm. weakest, um, 400, pretty strong, and then 200. Uh and I completely messed up my 800 meters, made a split second decision, which is the wrong one, misread the race. Um, we'd spent two years working on the tactics for it. And it was basically one one way to run the race, which was to go to the front and time trial it. And I, the gun went off, got to the break, and I didn't think I was in the lead. So made a decision to drop into the pack uh, and came nowhere. And then actually watching the video back that night, I, I was in the lead. I just... I'm, and you kind of go, you know, the amount of experience I had, the number of 800 meters I've done in my life, I've done probably hundreds of them, just misread it in that moment. And 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 it was, you know, coming off the track and then everybody, you know, telling me how rubbish I was. I'm like, yeah, no, it's there. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, what would you do? Oh, right, you do that. And you get all these, like, completely odd views of what I should have done in the race, which from someone who's never done an 800 meters in one minute and 48 seconds but you have to just smile take it uh and and so that was kind of actually it just made me realize you know one one bad race doesn't make you a bad athlete it just happens and there's loads of other races i've lost it's just that was live on tv and you know there was just other stuff going on as well so you know it was um yeah not great so i think that that probably defined a lot of what i do now and because i remember um some coaches you know, not, not being great about it and, you know, not particularly knowing me as a person. So I think some of that does inform the work I do on duty care and, you know, looking after athletes, getting athletes to think about transition and, and all those different things. That that does have an impact. And I, I kind of won my 100 afterwards, which is a massive relief. But um, the, the 800 was, you know, still, I don't, I don't wake up thinking about it, but I, I never think if only, you know, because it's like it didn't happen. But... It, it was actually probably a, a decent thing. You know, it, was, it, it wasn't a bad thing to happen at that point in my career. What sort of thing did it teach you then? So what, what would be the things that you perhaps have had learned from it? Uh, taught me who my friends in sport were. Right. Who spoke Who spoke to me after the race and who didn't. Mm. Really interesting. So some people... Because you I wouldn't have my... won the other races that by that point they were on other days. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, okay. So, yeah, the, the people who just blanked me or there are a couple of people who are really happy that I lost who couldn't hide it and you go okay that's human nature a bit and you know it just so I think that's a really valuable lesson um teaching you who your friends are um and just actually coming back you know I mean I had Mm -hmm. the option of leaving Athens and coming home and saying I was injured and it was like and that was never a consideration it was um However bad it is, I stay and I see it out. You know, if I'd lost every race, 
you, you, you've got to finish it. You know, my dad would have gone mad with me if I'd left as well. So you, you, you've got to see out what you did. You know, I committed to doing those games. You've got to do it. So I think it teaches you, you know, you, you can dig deep at times. Yeah. Look, I, so I do want to transition into what you do now. I do, and you had mentioned how you had already put into plan because I, I can tell even just from the pre-conversation, there's passion behind what you're doing. Now, and you wouldn't do what you're doing now without all the passion behind it. Uh, but you, you'd planned your retirement at the age of 21, which is crazy for uh, for many athletes. And I know even when I retired at 26, I wouldn't have sort of forecast it, but definitely wasn't planning it. And that was again a journey in itself and i've spoken about it on the podcast before but now what were you doing to get yourself into what you do now were there did you know you wanted to go into politics to activism to um yeah to talking on on some really big subjects in the world and making like you said a change um i was always interested in activism uh, and that was kind of uh really important for me um I actually did uh, politics at university. I went to Loughborough, that great seat of political learning. Uh, and I was actually meant to do history there. And um, between sitting my A-levels and getting my results, they shut the course. And I got a letter saying, we'll transfer your grades to another course. So I was like, I'll do politics because actually it was really similar. Um, and that kind of opened my eyes. So I was doing German politics the year the wall came down and, you know, uh, you know, um, doing Russian politics and, you know, all the stuff happening with Reagan and Gorbachev and reading Perestroika on a plane to New Zealand to compete in the Commonwealth Games. So, um, (laughs) you know, and then travelling the world, seeing what people had, what they didn't have, how women and disabled people were treated around the world. And then I just sat on loads of different sports bodies, Sport Wales, UK Sport, Sport England Lottery, um, National Disability Council, just got loads of experience, did some TV, did some radio. So when I retired, I knew absolutely what I did not want to do and I think that's really important because I was offered um, a job which um, in telly which would have paid a lot for one year but I probably wouldn't have done another season because I wouldn't have been any good at it so I was able just to turn that down and say no that's not what I don't want to do that so I think those things were important so I think and then you know I was part of the bid for um, 2012 so I started that in worked on that in 2002 um, and um, my roommate (laughs) (laughs) and um uh yeah so i I, I started i I worked on the bid and then we won in 2005 and then it was like oh okay so i knew athens was my last paralympics didn't quite know when i wanted to stop but it was like i knew i wasn't going to do beijing there is not a chance i could have hung on to beijing and um it was like i've got the chance to work on pretty much the only Olympics and Paralympics we're going to have on home soil in my lifetime. What do I want to do? Mm. I kind of, and I couldn't, you know, uh, if, if looking back, I probably should have retired at the end of 2005, but I can't regret that final year. I was sick. I was injured. I couldn't hang a, a kind of a block of training sessions together. It was a pretty miserable year, but actually it meant at the end of it, there was nothing left in me that wanted to carry on. It had all gone. It had all been the life and the love of my sport had been kind of sucked out. So as much as it was hard, it was good to do. Um, so, yeah, and the chance to work on the games. So, I mean, there's a bit about, you know, sliding doors. It happens at the right time. But, um, 
yeah, I knew activism and, and that side was what I was going to end up um, being involved in. And use my, so the other thing my dad said to me, you know, he apparently he told me when I was 20 when I was going to end up in the House of Lords, but I, I really do not remember him saying that. Not a clue. Um, and then when I got in, he was like, well, I told you. Yeah, okay. Right. Okay, Dad. He's like, oh, yes, I do remember. No, I um, but um, he always used to be like, use your platform. So my, my dad had a good job growing up, you know, um, he was an architect and his education, you know, we weren't, but we were actually, we had a really strict upbringing, um, which I think was probably, you know, good as, as well. Um, but um, he, he always used to say to me that I had more privilege than a lot of other children, but getting into mainstream ed and, and all that kind of, and being in sport and traveling the world and, and, you know, as a young athlete, getting some sponsors and a bit of help and stuff like that. So he, he always used to say to me about use your platform to you know and and give people a platform no don't speak for people but help help give other people a platform to do the things they want to do and so mm. it, it never felt like a really like it didn't feel like a great weight of responsibility but there was something there which was okay you know not everyone had what i had so you know more more young disabled children should have the opportunities i had i don't want to open the can of worms that is talking about politicians and things and and going into that but i do want to ask i find it super interesting that an athlete has gone into politics and finds themselves in the house of lords because there are so many characteristics about an athlete that i feel are relatable to the general public but what do you think some of the characteristics that you hold have really shone through in in your role now and have helped you perhaps stand out in that role so it's really funny because people always assume it's a really difficult transition and it's not at all. It's really similar. Right. So in sport, you're kind of you're trying to go as fast as you can. In politics, a lot of our debates are time limited. So you know going into a debate, you've got three minutes to take people with you. And you have to make the absolute most of those three minutes that you've got. And um I was involved in sort of quite a contentious debate recently and somebody said to me, Oh, like your speech was really good and like really moving, it was like off the cuff. It's like been practicing that in my head for nine months you know not not all the time but i'll be sitting there going well, what if i said it like that I'm not okay and then you put it away again and and so you know the resilience you get you know you, you need a level of ego to be an elite athlete and you need a level of ego to put yourself in the chamber you know especially if you're losing votes and i remember when i was working on welfare reform and i was in charge of all the sets of votes that afternoon i lost them all and because it was a three-line whip against me and i remember ringing home my daughter was little and um I remember saying to me, um, Daddy's made me watch the Parliament channel. So I was like, oh, great. What, what, what do you think? She went, you're not doing very well, are you, mummy? You're losing everything. <laughs> I went, yes, Karis, I am. Yes. And she was like, oh, but we still love you. And you're like, oh, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> you know, um, and, and so, yeah, there's, there's a load of similarities, you know, to kind of, and, and to, to evaluate yourself and to kind of think about what you did well and what you didn't do well and to have another go next time. You know, there's, there's, there will always be another welfare reform bill. There will be another education bill. There will be, you know, you you just got to keep working on it. So so actually it's, and I think the other, the most important thing, sorry, it's a long answer, but as an athlete, you, you always ask questions because you, athletes are a pain in the neck because they crave feedback and they're quite needy. You know, what I was like, okay, if I did that one, what do, how can I be better? And, and in, in politics, you need to have that. And so the critical friends I had in sport, the ones who stuck with me after Athens are still in my life now. 
you know, and they watch the Parliament Channel, which is above and beyond anything you'd ever ask a member of the training group to do. I mean, normally they'll say things like, you know, you should have brushed your hair or you looked a bit tired or, you know, <laughs> hate the jacket or, you know, or, you know, the first two minutes of your speech were great and then you just lost it. But you need that to improve next time. It's really important to keep improving. Yeah, that that I think is a is is great to hear for for people that are listening that may maybe not know a bit about politics or what might go into it for the characteristic side. But I'd I'd love that idea of being able to of being able to bring those attributes from from sport into it. What uh, are some of the things that you're working on at the moment that you are super proud of? Um, so I work on duty care in sport. And this is about providing duty care and protection to everyone in the system. And sport at its best is amazing, but there's a dark side to it. And, you know, the, there are sometimes in some sports a set of behaviours that aren't positive and there are individuals who are not good people. And there's loads of, you know, you've got to balance it. But, you know, where we are in, in sport at the moment, you know, 10 years since the 2012 Games, there's been a number of sports in the public domain who've gone through really difficult safeguarding you know, bullying, intimidation cases, things like that. And so uh, I, I've been working on that for a long time. Um, keep nudging it forward. Uh, a group of us have just got positions to trust legislation through, which means it's now illegal for a sports coach to be in a sexual relationship with a 16 or 17-year-old. It's illegal for teachers. It should be illegal for coaches. So, um, you know, it's that, that's taken seven years to get onto the statute books uh and it's not about criminalizing a 21 year old coach in a relationship with a 17 year old but it's about someone who's in uh, a position of power over a 16 17 year old athlete and that doesn't stop it happening at older age and that's next on the list now we've got this bit through the, the next bit on the list is um and there's always a long list mandatory reporting which is then you know if if you know that um uh, say an athlete is is being abused on the program you know, you you can't just hide your head in the sand and say I didn't know it was happening. You you have to move. That's going to be a a tough bit to get through, but I think that's important. So, yeah, there's 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 loads. There's always a long list of things to to do and to try and change. Um, and I want people to have the best experience of sport they can. I mean, yeah, that there are yeah. some difficult bits, but there is no place for bullying, intimidation, sexual harassment, sexual abuse. You know, challenging athletes to be the best they can you know, is, is one thing, but, but the other side of it, there's no place in sport for that. And mainly because of, does, does any of it go into the physical, is, is this talking in sports clubs or is it going into like the physical education system? Because I know you mentioned schools, but schools obviously are uh, looked after by different governing bodies. Does that, does this stem into physical education or does it merely stay within clubs, groups and the, the bound to sport? Um, it, it sort of goes everywhere, actually. And, you know, it's the whole system that sort of, um, you know, feeds from from the top down. And, uh, you know, most of my, my work is probably pathway, um, you know, talented athletes up. But saying that, uh, you know, the kids come from from somewhere on the coach. So, yeah, it's it, it's kind of a, and at different points in time. There's different bits of the system that need kind of looking at and supporting. And, and different things that 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 need to to happen, but um, you know, I'm also very lucky. I, I work in um, a number of different sports projects around the world. Um, you know, one project that we've supported over the years 
um, kids aren't allowed to bring their guns to the project. You know, I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> that, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and sounds fair. You, you, <laughs> Yeah, it do, yeah, you, you think that should be kind of quite accepted, shouldn't you? But you know, it's it's stuff like that that you you get context for the really good stuff that happens in sport and and what else need, needs to be done. Because and actually, just on a basic level, we as a nation we need to be fitter and healthier. We need more people being a bit rubbish at sport, elite sport, yeah. and more people being fit and healthy. Um, I, I controversially said at a conference a couple of years ago, "Sport is dead," and that kind of exercised everywhere. Everyone got. Um, really upset by it but it's like no you know we've got to be thinking about physical activity and the sport comes out of that Hmm. well I think I'm I'm a big believer in that physical education at school is without a doubt the most important subject because no matter what it it should be the foundation of all the other subjects mainly because all the other subjects will mean nothing if you are unhealthy unable to do them we are seeing a mental health pandemic in itself mm. we are also seeing obesity epidemics around the world and mm. like being able to control your physical health and have an education around your physical yeah. health will lay a bedrock and foundation for the other subjects to excel and yeah. so to neglect that or to when i hear of i've literally come from my school today working and mentoring some some kids there and speaking to the staff and just looking at how like understaffed they are or the 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 sort of resources they have it it just it really hurts like and that's why i have a mission that i want to be able to build something that funds programs like that but i i think that is just so important that people are not necessarily going into physical education thinking they're going to be an athlete but just knowing like how do i move my body how do i stay healthy what do i need to eat what do i need to what, what is a yeah. what does good exercise feel like well we know that you know children um in the six week summer holiday lose up to 75 percent of their fitness you know the idea they're all running around through the summer is nonsense you know and especially as we go into you know the fuel crisis then you know also if kids that are being active they eat more and some families are really struggling to feed their kids. So, you know, it's not they don't want their kids to be active, but they can't afford for their kids to be active. And, you know, in 2020, children were out of school for 29 weeks. So what's that done to that generation of, mm. of young people? You know, people are hitting frailty in their 40s and taking 40 years to die. Um, you want to be hitting frailty wow. a year before you die. You know, um, and, you know and, and there's these things that we keep kicking the can down the road rather than, you know, as, as a nation, we can't afford to keep doing that because we've got a generation of young people who, who might die before their parents because of their own activity levels. You know, that's, that's really scary stuff. Mm. Yeah, that, that is, that, I didn't know, thinking that, the 40 years of frailty, that's terrifying. That is, yeah. You're right. What's your, what's your exit strategy at the end there, really, at the end of life? Um, yeah. I do, I'm very cautious of time, and I, I do just want to touch on where you've seen where you sit, have seen or where you see disability access and uh, inclusion going in the next sort of few years the main thing is that i see you tweet often around your train experiences and the thing yes. that is also interesting <laughs> is the replies that you get so i've gone into the replies and you see the stories of other people who are clearly yeah. either in a wheelchair and are experiencing some things and the lack of empathy that is out there is astronomical like it's it shot it it really did shock me yeah i mean i've had people saying you know people like you shouldn't be allowed on the train at that time of night and 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 much much worse 
So I started tweeting about trains just to get non-disabled people thinking about how they may be able to help. You know, if you see a wheelchair user stuck on a train, you know, find a guard, find someone on the platform, you know, just stand in the door, you know. Um, and yeah, some of those, there can be quite a lack of empathy out there. And um, pre-pandemic, I was on the, trying to get on the tube at half seven in the morning. I remember someone saying to me, it's very busy. And it was that tone, you know, it's rush hour. You're like, that's half seven in the morning. And going up. And, um, and we go, people have got jobs to go to. I've got a job. Oh, have you? Anyway, it went on. Anyway. Um, so I'm quite resilient from sports and politics to deal with that. But it's hard when you get it all the time. It's really difficult to deal with. So, you know, trains were meant to be in the 90s. We were promised that trains will be step free in the UK, January the 1st, 2020. That date is now 2070. So in my lifetime, I will not be able to get on a train on my own. And, you know, that's just, I mean, it's ridiculous. So so I tweet about it. I mean, and, and there's a group of us sort of disability rights campaigners. We sort of support each other and um, we, we sometimes get a bit daft tweeting. Um, there was one train company that tweeted that um, they, they had improved some of their accessibility, but it, it wasn't brilliant. And um, somebody asked the question, could, as a wheelchair user, could you get to the cafe bar? And the response was, you'll, you'll be in sight of the cafe bar. So lots of us tweeted, you know, well, I did anyway, um, you know, in my dream for equality and inclusion, being in sight of a cafe bar is all I've ever wanted, you know, thank you. You know, and it, it was being sarcastic. And then a visually impaired friend of mine was saying, you know, I'll send my guide dog to get you a egg and crest sandwich, um, you know, and it's just, because people just didn't connect. It was like, there's no point in me being in sight of a cafe, but I don't travel with a carer. I don't often travel with anybody, you know, it, that that's just not good enough. Um, so there's a lot of stuff around disabled people and it's really low level, but just get forgotten quite a lot. And and that's, that's hard, you know, so that's why I tweet or I talk about it in the chamber because it's, it's, it's relentless if, if you're getting treated like that all the time. So, so what would be your advice to someone who perhaps does see someone in a wheelchair that is um, having a rough time? Cause I, I, I was speaking to a couple of people about this and I think some, some perceptions are that, they, they see it, and this is, I think, the outliers where they see this are people who may go to help someone in a wheelchair and they'll be like, no, I'm okay, I'm fine, I'm capable, I can do it. Or, or And then they see that interaction and they go, well, do I do that again? Do I do it to the next person? Yeah. Like, is that next person going to do it? What, what's your advice there? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think the best thing to do, it, it it's not for someone else's... Um, position to judge whether someone can cope or not so ask the question and if the person says no i'm fine thank you even if they look like they're really 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 struggling you walk away you know because they may be too embarrassed to want help or they may not need help or they may be quite happy doing it on their own i remember a time i was in canary wharf and i had um a rucksack on the back of my chair one on my shoulders my bag on my knee i was talking on my phone and pushing along with my phone like that you know tucked underneath my shoulder and this woman came up behind me and just started pushing me and it was like I don't want to and it also got very British because it's like oh I'm not going to say anything and and it I ended up pretending I had to go into this building and then nearly caused a security alert because uh, I was in a building I wasn't meant to be in but but this person had just not asked whether I wanted any help or not I just decided she was going to push me somewhere and um you know it's it's not you know just just listen to what the person says and so you know and, and sometimes, do you know what, if, if the reaction from someone is not brilliant, a lot of the time disabled people are expected to be grateful. 
And it's sometimes just really hard to be grateful all the time. And you don't know that person might have had a really bad day. So they may give you a grumpy answer, but mm. don't, don't let it stop you kind of offering to, to help, um, you know, some, someone else. Um, you know, as, as I get older, some of the stuff I used to take for granted gets a bit harder and, you know, I might need some help, but you know, if, yeah, just, just listen to the answer and, and, and walk away, I think. And, um, I was just going to, a friend of mine's visually impaired. She, she works near the RNIB and the number of times every week someone grabs her and starts trying to walk her to the RNIB because they assume that's where she works because she's blind. I mean, we kind of laugh about it, but it's, it's not funny just people grabbing her and, you know, assuming, and we sort of have a big joke about, yeah, don't, don't all blind people live there? You know, don't, don't we all know each other? Um, and, and you kind of sometimes need that bit of a sense of humour. Um, but yeah, just, just listen. And then if they say no, walk away. And if they say yes, help. Brilliant. Yeah. Look, Tani, thank you so much for your time. And I always finish off with just asking guests of any book, documentary, quote, or or film, perhaps, that you always find yourself recommending to inspire others. Um, probably the one I put, seize the day. It's, you know, the really simple saying, just make the most of the opportunities you have, whether that's to be an elite athlete or just sometimes you don't always see the opportunities that are in front of you, but but make the most of the opportunities that you have. And and what I say to youngsters, you know, don't don't look at something and decide you don't like it. It's a bit like eating cabbage. Eat the cabbage and then decide you don't like it. You know, it was, with, with other things, it's really easy to go, mm, we don't fancy that try it give it a bit of a chance and then you know move on to other things it's about widening your experience as well try loads of different things because how do you know what you like unless you try loads of different things um and i think yeah make make the most of the opportunities that that you have um that that's probably the most important lesson i've learned yeah and and where's the best place for people to find you to follow the work that you're doing is it to send them to twitter is it website where's where's the best place for people to go yeah, I'm on Twitter. Um, so I'm Tanny underscore GT. I sort of dip my toe into Instagram, but my 20 year old daughter's on Instagram and we've kind of agreed that that's not <laughs> a good place for me to be. Um, and um, uh, uh, yeah, I've got a website, which is tanny.co.uk. And if anyone wants to kind of chat about anything that they've heard me talking about, you can find my email address on the parliamentary website. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. It, it really has been great to have someone like yourself on here who not only has done so much on the on the field or the track, it is, it's really just, so, like you said, the Nelson Mandela quote, like sport has the power to change the world. And and this mission that you're on, the, the work that you're doing, it just, I think more and more people need to have that purpose behind what they're doing and why they're in sport and realize how much power it can have for people around them so thank you so much for your time and uh and good luck with everything that you have coming on thank you very much <laughs>